It's Monday, November 21st, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A major breakthrough, we were told, in the funding for climate change justice, New York Times. In a first, rich countries agree to pay for climate damages in poor nations. Finally, justice, but we dare not call it justice. Reparations is also a term that causes more sweats than August in Karachi. As The Times says... There was a brewing debate over what's called the new fund. Developing nations consider it compensation, and climate activists often refer to it as reparations. But diplomats, particularly the Americans, called the money loss and damage resources. The Times' very next words, in addition to a loss and damaged fund, okay, so I guess we know that the Times immediately adopted the softer focus group tested option, but it's not just the Americans who call it a loss and damage fund, it is the UN, here represented by Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez. I welcome the decision to establish a loss and damage fund and to operationalize it in the coming period. Clearly, this will not be enough, but it is a much needed political signal to rebuild broken trust. The voices of those on the front lines of the climate crisis must be heard. But who are those voices on the front lines? I think it means, you know, Bangladesh, the Maldives, poor, vulnerable nations victimized by the emissions of CO2 gases that they didn't put into the atmosphere. The problem is India and China think of themselves as being on the front lines as victims as well. Only China is the world's largest emitter of global warming gases, double the next largest emitter, USA, USA, and India is third. And China wants its voice to be heard, and that voice is saying, we are to receive money from this fund, not pay into it. If this happens, the fund can't work. But I got good news, because if this happens, the fund won't work. The United States, now with a Republican-controlled House of Representatives, certainly won't be allocating funds for an effort to ameliorate climate change when China not only doesn't contribute to the fund, but takes from the fund. There is some hope that China will, in fact, pay its share, or at least some diplomaties that maybe complicates the issue. The Wall Street Journal reports negotiators from the group of 77, which represent 132 developing countries, insisted on a proposal for a loss and damage fund that would potentially provide money to all developing nations, even wealthier ones like China, not just the vulnerable countries. So putting aside that the group of 77 includes 132 nations. By the way, the New York Times says it's 133, and the group of 77's website says it's 134. Uh, I guess the Big Ten has 14 teams, doesn't it? So who are we to judge? But like I said, putting that aside, there was some negotiating, and here's the results of the negotiation. The group of 77 said, fine, we talked it over. We're on board with only the poor and vulnerable countries getting the money. And the group of 77 includes, as its member, China, So this is settled. Only China does not include itself as a member of the group of 77, which is really a group of somewhere between 132 and 134. China has not signed off on any of this. They say the devils are in the details, an apt phrase referring to a sulfur-spewing foe who convinced much of the world it didn't exist. But for all the monumental breakthroughs, I would consider it unclear if China wants in and further unclear if they want in on the giver side or the taker side. I'm sure they'd sign on if they were getting some money out of this. And the same is true for India. It's unlikely should that happen that the U.S. will vote to fund it. I mean, there already is a $100 billion a year pledge in place. 
It was pledged at COP15. We're at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. Sharm el-Sheikh pairs well with the McRib. But that pledge has yet gone unmet. It did hit above $80 billion last year. That's good, but not good enough. And even if the $100 billion pledge was totally met, everyone acknowledges that's not good enough. And this new pledge, this loss and damage resource idea, we all know that's not good enough. I'd also say that the best way to fight climate change probably isn't giving the governments of Pakistan and Somalia money directly. That does seem to be a part of the loss and damage plan. But I don't oppose the plan. Take the supposedly dispiriting $100 billion number, right? The actual amount raised is kind of close to $100 billion. That is something. That ain't nothing. Maybe this non-reparation fund will be something more, something necessary, something from those who can give it to those who need it. That's a lot of somethings. And I am not holding my breath, although with the increase in brush fires and warming's contribution to ground-level ozone, maybe I should be. On the show today, my frustrating social media spat of prehistoric elephantine proportions. But first, a couple of weeks ago, Brazil had an election, and Brian Winter, editor-in-chief of America's Quarterly, walks us through what not only Lula da Silva's win, but Yair Bolsonaro's admission of defeat means and why it came about. A couple of weeks ago, Brazil had a monumental election, the results of which were a slight but actual and confirmed victory for Lulu da Silva, the once and future president, which means Jair Bolsonaro, the would-be strongman who was the president of Brazil, has been voted out. The question is, would he leave? The answer seems to be yes, and I'm really wondering as to why the best person I could think of maybe other than Bolsonaro himself, though I don't know if I'd get an honest answer, to talk about this is Brian Winter, editor-in-chief of America's Quarterly. He is the vice president of policy for the America's Society and the Council of the Americas. And I'm going to say something of an expert on the religion of Brazil, just because he wrote a book called Why Soccer Matters. He co-wrote that with Pelé. Brian, welcome to The Gist. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So to get to why, give us, first of all, a sense of the rules before we started. We started to talk about norms. Maybe norms will come up. But give us a sense of the actual rules of the election and how that perhaps facilitated an acceptance of the results. Well, I would start with Brazil's election system, uh, which counts votes with incredible speed because it's all electronic. And so this, as an American, was... Still shocking. I mean, I've been following Brazil for 20 years now and still, you know, by really nine o'clock on the evening of the election. And by the way, they do elections on Sunday as well to make it easier for people to vote. They have everything counted. It's over. And in that kind of environment that, you know, the longer things wait, the easier it is for people, especially in the age of social media, to kind of stick their heads up and say, "Mm, I don't know, something suspicious going on here. And it was harder, not impossible, but harder for either side in Brazil's election to do that with this runoff that we had on October 30th, simply because the results came in so fast. It's over, it's known, and they don't wait for or farm out the responsibility of calling it to the media, as strangely we do in the United States. And I think we're alone in that regard. How important is that? 
you realize again, watching other countries vote, how strange some of our electoral traditions are, because we don't have even one system in the United States. Of course, we have 50 systems, um, many of which work a bit differently. And then this ludicrous tradition of waiting for the Associated Press to be the one that actually makes the call, um, at least in terms of how we process it. They don't have the final word, but they're the ones that everybody looks to and says, oh, okay, I guess that's I guess that's over now. Um, so, you know, in a climate where I have no doubt that Bolsonaro and many of his supporters were looking for any excuse to step in and say, mm, I don't know, this looks like fraud. We know this because Bolsonaro spent months prior to election day doing everything he could to cast doubt on the integrity of the system. Um, they, the window that they had was a lot smaller, in part because of this system that they have which I think carries a lot of lessons for the United States and, and other countries as well. And was Bolsonaro doing that, sowing the seeds of doubt, because he thought that there might be a crack, a fissure, a possibility, or was there an electoral advantage, a campaigning advantage to advancing that, which I think probably fits in with a lot of his theories about something equivalent to the deep state in Brazil? Well, Bolsonaro thought he might lose, and he was loudest about... Um, the possibility of fraud in the system when he, when the polls were showing him 10, 15, or even 20 points down uh, in the middle of this year during the American summer. Uh, as the polls narrowed and election day grew closer, he mysteriously, and I'm being sarcastic here, didn't talk quite as much about worries uh, in the integrity of the system. This was a situation where, and you know, there are all kinds of parallels, of course, between Brazil and the United States. I, I, the experience of watching Brazil as an American over the last five years or so has been incredibly bizarre. I have to say that every time I make a comparison, I sort of pause and think, and you know, there are two very different countries. But you know, this was a case where uh, Bolsonaro really was and is still scared of handing over power to Lula, to Lula uh, his longtime rival, in part because he fears criminal prosecution for both himself and his politically active children. <laughs> There's another another common thread uh, you'll notice. And so, um, you know, he, he was really pushing hard and to some extent still continues to do so. I mean, he will hand over power, but reluctantly. And he probably won't be there on the day of the inauguration to hang the traditional green and yellow sash around Lula's neck just as Trump took off before election day or before inauguration day back in 2021. So I know that Bolsonaro was trying to and succeeded to some extent weakening the institutions of Brazil. Did he just not get to the election system or did he not weaken them sufficiently to achieve his ends? Mike, I think what happened in Brazil was a tale of institutions being resilient and working imperfectly. And by the way, I think that um, you know the electoral court, which is another uh, somewhat strange Brazilian mechanism that exists to run the elections, but also kind of regulate political speech and what can and can't be said on social media. I think that institution worked imperfectly. It committed some abuses of its own. Um, at the end of the day, I do think that they were able to identify the risk that Bolsonaro presented and create a scenario where the winner, whoever it would be, and it was close, but the winner would be respected. 
I think that's partly a tale of what Brazil has been able to build on its own uh, over the last uh, more than three decades since they returned to democracy after the last dictatorship ended in 1985. I also think that the fact that we had a January 6th in the United States helped, meaning that it what happened at the Capitol and in the weeks after the 2020 election showed very clearly to the Brazilian authorities that this risk was real. There was no way for people in places like the Supreme Court and Congress and elsewhere to be like, oh, that couldn't happen here. I mean, a few people said that, but most people understood that the risk of some kind of rupture was real. So there is a count. It is done centrally. It is done competently and speedily. There is an electoral court. It is respected. It has legitimacy. Was it under fire in recent years? It was under fire from Bolsonaro and his uh, allies. And I will say that as, again, echoes of the U.S., some of the rhetoric that Bolsonaro employed was effective. If a president who has that bully pulpit and a lot of followers and Bolsonaro retained his base, which is about a third, maybe a bit less of the country, very strongly with him. Um, A president, if he's out there every day talking about potential fraud in the system, that will change some minds. And in an area that Brazilians, according to polls, had never really questioned before, there had never been doubts about the integrity of the electoral system. Now you've got about a third of the country in the wake of this election who thinks that, uh, that there was fraud and that it was fake. More than that, In Brazil, you have thousands of people at various sites around the country, Bolsonaro supporters who've gathered outside military barracks and are explicitly asking the military to stage a coup in support of Bolsonaro in order to keep him in power because they think he's the rightful winner. But they're a minority. And I think it's safe to say that the majority of the country, I think by a healthy margin, including some Bolsonaro supporters, recognize that what happened was legitimate and that Lula's the actual winner. And as far as a coup, of course, Brazil was a military dictatorship until fairly recently, and that is where Bolsonaro comes from, the military side of things. So they're a different kind of institution than we have in the United States. Was there ever a question that they would hold? I don't think that there was fear of a coup per se. But there's a lot of things that a powerful institution like the armed forces in Brazil can do that can make democracy work less well or even put it in danger. And this was a major difference. We've talked about so many similarities. This was a major difference between Brazil and the U.S., which is that Bolsonaro had the military commanders at least somewhat on his side. They wanted him to win. And in some of this dispute following the election, Uh, The military continues to send some signals that they're on his side. And, you know, it it won't rise to the level of a coup. We're not going to see tanks rolling through the streets in Brazil. But the military, and this is true across much of Latin America, the military shows up in polls as the most respected institution or one of the most respected institutions. They're very influential in politics, in the economy, uh, and so on. And so having them against you, as Lula will when he takes office on January 1st, 2023, is bad. And having armed forces with the kind of tradition that Brazil and many other Latin American countries have, having a military that is kind of 
not only dipped its toe back into politics, but really it's up to the knee and possibly higher. Um, historically, that doesn't lead anywhere good. And so even though Brazil has gotten through this process pretty well, or better than many of us expected, it's not in the clear. And they could have some problems in coming years that would look different from the ones that we've had in the U.S. It does seem to me that Turkey is in a similar situation as well. I think that's right. Although that's maybe not your subject area of expertise, but still. Well, it's it's not. But, you know, this democratic recession that some people, is the term some people use of democracies being at risk throughout much of the world, that's, that's a real problem. Uh, and it's not, Brazil is not alone. It echoes what we're seeing in so many places in parts of Western Europe, uh, in the United States, and certainly throughout Latin America and Turkey too. <laughs> so Brian, everything you've painted is a picture of guardrails working, working sufficiently, disincentives for Bolsonaro to try some chicanery. But what about his self-interest? Was it simply that every signal he got said, don't do this, it won't work? Or was it something else? Was it you know, a cost-benefit analysis that might have taken into account how hard it would be to achieve, but also something about the downside of attempting a coup? That's a great question. I think it was a mix of both. And here I would do some self-criticism. I spent most of the campaign saying, you know, the closer this election gets, the hairier the post-election period could be. Uh, but I was wrong. It ended up being the opposite because Bolsonaro, by getting so close, uh, was personally disincentivized from shedding quite as much doubt on the election because I hear from sources that he really did believe that he would win. Um, but also, even though Bolsonaro lost, Bolsonarismo did very well, meaning his conservative movement that he really presides over um, won elections for Congress. Uh, Bolsonaro allies will be the governors of Brazil's three most populous states. And that all happened through a quirk of the Brazilian election system. Those results were mostly defined after the first round of voting. And so those guys essentially were spent the next uh, four weeks during the runoff telling Bolsonaro, like, dude, don't ruin what we've done. Don't put our whole movement at risk by trying to overturn these elections because you'll you'll damage all of us, including yourself. And so that that was a big part of the story. But you know, the other one, Mike, is that even some Bolsonaro allies ended up uh, being Democrats at the end of the day, or at the very least, believing in the wisdom of the popular vote. The most prominent case being their equivalent of the Speaker of the House, this guy, Artur Lira, who was a Bolsonaro ally. I mean, he was out there on the campaign trail with Bolsonaro, sitting in the front row at one of his rallies. But this guy came out within an hour of those, you know, that quick count being available and read a statement where he said, the people's will must be respected and it cannot be contested. And that was game over. Whatever thought Bolsonaro had at that point left of maybe trying to contest this result in some way, shape or form, uh, that was it. And it makes you think as an American um, about the potential figures in our own structure who could have done that in the weeks and months after the 2020 election. Maybe that's a lesson we'll learn for some somewhere down the road. 
Yeah, it is. But I definitely want to go back to your idea that conservatives aligned with Bolsonaro in his party did so well. And the three most populous states are governed by Bolsonaro allies. And that's different from Trumpism, where he has transactional allies, but he likes to pick a winner. He doesn't really see himself as part of conservatism or a movement that's not named Trump. But Bolsonaro does, making the case that it's become more apparent that Bolsonaro sees a pathway to power through others who already have power and maybe his return within the system than, say, Donald Trump did. Bolsonaro oversaw the creation of a conservative movement in Brazil that simply had not existed previously. Uh, and it's come about because of profound transformations in Brazilian society. The biggest one, I think the most important one, is that, you know, in the 1980s, about 10% of Brazil's population was evangelical Christian. Today, it's about a third, maybe higher. And there are demographers in Brazil who say that the evangelicals could be a majority in Brazil by the year 2033 uh, in what was always a, a Catholic country. And that is a huge transformation in the span of just a generation. And Bolsonaro has brought them uh, under his umbrella. They don't always agree, of course. It's a big, complicated country. I mean, Brazil's bigger than the continental United States in geography. It's 210 million people. But he was able to build the biggest umbrella for this part of the population that had ever existed before. And I know for a fact that some of his allies came to him during that period and said, you have accomplished a lot. And if you play your cards right, we're going to be strong in opposition for the next four years. And you or perhaps one of your sons will be able to come back in 2026. And so it appears that at least at some level, perhaps unwillingly kind of dragging his feet, Bolsonaro decided to play the long game. But you raise a good and interesting point. You paint a picture of Bolsonaro being more genuinely ideological than Donald Trump was. That word has a certain sheen. But if you're ideological, the ideas can live on beyond you, although in his case, maybe through his sons. But there's something to that, uh, at least as I hear it, that he had a fealty to something other than just his own personal self and uh, self-advancement. Well, I mean, I think that Trump had some ideas that have changed the Republican Party, um, such as uh, the opposition to trade, for example, or the stance on China. And so I, I do think that there's ideology there. I mean, I always personally agree with it, but I think he brought, you know, some new ideas and, and those ideas will endure, even if Trump's ultimately not the candidate in, uh, in 24, if he loses to DeSantis. Um, so I, I see a similar phenomenon in Brazil, and it's just proof that this particular brand of conservatism um, that uh, places the culture wars, uh, issues like abortion and so-called gender ideology, there are lots of common threads, not just between that group in Brazil and the United States, but all over parts of the Western world. And they're here to stay. They are not going to go away. The question is whether this strain that also includes this anti-democratic uh, you know, thing where they question elections. It, is it possible to have one without the other? And I think, you know, it's something we're going to see in the U.S. very soon. And I think we'll see that soon in Brazil as well. Last question, and it's a little bit of a detour, but you'll see why I'm asking it. The United States has, uh, it's a norm and also a rule, but not a law 
against prosecuting even former presidents. And Brazil does not. Uh, Lula da Silva was uh, imprisoned, and here he is back. Does Brazil offer any insight about the wisdom or the demerits of such a rule? You know, sometimes Brazil is really muddy, and this is one of those cases. Uh, the whole case with Lula was, you know, really dramatic. Uh, he did go to jail, uh, was found guilty of corruption charges in two different cases, was in jail for 580 days. Some people thought he was going to spend the rest of his life in jail. There were problems with the trial. The Supreme Court decided that the judge in the case had been biased. And basically, those charges were thrown out. And that's why Lula is not only free, but had his political rights restored and is now going to be president again, um, starting uh, on January 1st. So I, I, you know, I understand the benefits that prosecuting a former president can bring. It can show that no one is above the law, but it's also the case that even in countries where the judiciary is uh, pretty developed, I think that you know, judges and prosecutors can act politically and it's a real danger. And so I I don't know, you probably hear this in my voice. I don't know where I, I stand on that issue kind of on principle. I think it varies case by case and country by country, but I I, I do, you know, I think both, both are, are dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous to have a situation where people believe that they're above the law, but also when you start jailing former presidents, um, as you point out, that's not in our tradition in the United States. And generally speaking, I mean, even though we've certainly backtracked in terms of the strength of our democracy over the last couple of years, I think our traditions have served us well. So that's one where I, you know, I get the heebie-jeebies and don't have a super clear answer. Brian Winter is the vice president for policy for the Americas Society and Council of the Americas. He's editor-in-chief of America's Quarterly, where he hosts the AQ Podcast, a lively half-hour talk with experts all the time. Brian, great talking to you. Hey, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. First, a quiz. The suspended mastodon. What is the suspended mastodon? Is it a next level yoga pose? A Damien Hurst exhibit? Is it a derisive nickname for a suspension bridge in Barcelona? Or choice D, it's what happened to me over the weekend. It's always choice D, isn't it? Maybe you heard, if not, you will now, about the time I tried to engage in a conversation with journalists and got kicked off the Twitter alternative mastodon. My account on the platform was suspended after I, it's going to take a deep breath, I have to admit this, rouse myself, to be honest here, I linked to a New York Times article. I also, I I didn't just link, I'll admit it, I called it thorough seeming. There's more. Oh yeah. I explained that linking to the article did not make me a bigot. If you're saying to yourself, Mike, what are the stakes here? Good note, Mr. Studio Executive. The stakes are kind of none in terms of 36 followers on a website that I was invited to try out by a friend, but you could plausibly read this as a bad part of an overall trend, a trend that might be called something like liberal censoriousness, maybe something with two C's where the first C rhymes with Yancel and the second C rhymes with Zulcher. Cancel culture is how Glenn Greenwald sees it. He tweeted about that. 
the implacable problems of content moderation, no matter who you are, that's how the New York Times sees it. That's how they're framing it in their coverage. Tomorrow, I'm going to get into a little bit more of why posting a New York Times article was in no way a provocation, was in fact just the kind of discussion that we need. But today, I want to address the punishable act that got me kicked off of Mastodon. So here's the predicate. A writer named Parker Malloy, who is prominent for her writing and her advocacy on trans issues, objected to my tweeting or tweeting or mastodoning. It's like they have a different word for everything. So posting this New York Times article. And she wrote, I'm so fucking sick of anti-trans ghouls like you promoting this shit under the guise of just asking questions. She further wrote, you think this is careful, thorough reporting, which I did say, because I do think so, because you agree with it because you're a bigot. So when I found out she had posted these sentiments, and I only go to Mastodon or went to Mastodon, can't go anytime now, but I only go every other day or so, I responded. So listen, she just said, I'm so fucking sick of anti-trans ghouls like you promoting this shit under the guise of just asking questions. And I wrote, at Parker, I'm not a ghoul, and I didn't say just asking questions. The Times piece was the type of thorough reporting the Times, and especially Megan Toohey, is known for, and it does not square with a common claim of the activist community. So you as a member of the activist community attack the article because of bad bedfellows, insult me, and mischaracterize the story as Republicans versus doctors. That's plainly inaccurate. She did do that, and it was inaccurate. And then I was banned. Do you want to know why? From what I just read, what was the offending word, phrase, or sentiment? Are you ready? It was the part about her being a member of the activist community. Parker, it turns out, does not identify as an activist, only an advocate. Okay, but those words are synonyms. It was explained to me that some activists might find that word demeaning, All right, but Parker Malloy is not one of them. She says that she has great respect for activists. She doesn't use the term to describe herself because it's something different from what she does. Fine, and had I known that, to be a polite person, I'd have said advocate, right? It doesn't square with a common claim among advocates, and since you are an advocate within that community, yeah, I'd be saying the exact same thing. And also, the meaning of activist is one who advocates or practices activism. I am sorry to get all Merriam-Webster's on you, but that is in the dictionary. Also, Parker Malloy is in the Trans 100, which is a list celebrating, I'll read you the exact description, a list of 100 leaders and advocates in the trans community. GLAAD, who sponsors the list, describes it as changing the game by sharing the inspiring and diverse stories of trans advocacy. So she's an advocate, she is an activist, she engages in activism, she calls the bosses of reporters who she objects to and tries to get them fired. She is routinely identified as an activist in materials touting her speaking appearances in the description of her media appearances. She was on the Daily Beat show, The New Abnormal, a month ago. Here's the description, writer and trans activist Parker Malloy joins host Andy Levy on this bonus episode of The New Abnormal. I feel stupid almost stupid, having to have done this research, presenting it to you, talking about why this word should not have occasioned a ban. No matter what word or phrase I used, I believe there would have been a reason or an excuse, and I'm just judging from the flimsiness of the reason they did use. The reason was arbitrary, and the impact was pretty negligible. I'm fine. I'm sitting out this Mastodonny Brook. But it does underline the total impossibility of having productive discussions if one of the participants really wants to shut the discussion down and if the people adjudicating the discussion allow that to happen. Also, there are particular topics in this I'll talk to. 
you about more tomorrow that are absolute third rails and it is dishonest to claim otherwise. You might say this is, in fact, cancel culture. I am debating Adam Davidson, who was the guy who first asked me to join that Mastodon group. I am debating him or discussing with him in an exchange of letters on Substack is the platform. He wrote letter number one, cancel culture is a myth. I'm out with my response letter in what should be a six-letter exchange. The first response that I've posted could have just been a still photo of me pointing to the events of the past weekend that took up way too much of my time. So sorry for taking up any of yours. I just thought there might be some interest and some questions, so I owed it to you to explain. If you're interested in the letter exchange, there will be a link in the show notes. If you're interested in the Mastodon business, I think you could go there and look at all the uh, postings. I know I can't because I am suspended. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by assistant producer Corey Warren, senior producer Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening. Ah!